being said, we're gonna jump into where we're at on Wednesday nights, which is the book of Psalms. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there in advance. Psalm chapter two, we're only two weeks into this. Psalm chapter one was such a blessing to walk through, pun intended. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And of course, the description there about the man who delights in the law of the Lord, meditates in the law of the Lord. What is he like? He's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He never runs dry in essence. His leaves are always green, regardless of the weather conditions around him. He is deeply rooted. He's firm. He's fixed. He's fruitful. He's fervent. And of course, the opposite, the ungodly. They're like the, the part of the grain that goes with the wind, the chaff. It's useless. Now, Psalm 2, if I was to say there'd be any passage in the Bible that I think I can preach for the rest of my life, it would be Psalm 2. Every single week, I think there would be something new in our world about Psalm 2. And yet, regardless of the ever-changing chaos of the world, what we discover in Psalm 2 is that God never changes, and he is sovereign, and he is the supreme ruler, and he is going to have the final say. That's what we're going to look at in Psalm 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn there now. Let me pray. Father, illuminate your word. Would your spirit begin to work? Open our eyes, our ears, open our hearts to receive what it is you will say to your church. Amen. All right, watch this. If Psalm 1 was a map and a mirror, do you remember that? It's a map, man's destination. It's a mirror, man's condition. What would Psalm 2 be? It's a monument. And on that monument is one word that has double connotation or double meaning. And the word on this monument is history. Psalm 2 is how history always plays out. Man raging, people plotting, sinners rebelling. But it's also, if you separate that word history, it's his story. That's the monument. Regardless of man raging and nations conspiring, regardless of their positions of power, kings and rulers and judges, regardless of them trying to attack the Lord and his anointed, God has embedded, installed his king. And his king has a name. And he has not only come once, he has promised to come again. And that's what Psalm 2 introduces us to. Now, if you're a note taker, an outline keeper, here's my outline. Verses one through three, the rebellion of sinners. Verses four to six, the reaction of the sovereign. Verses seven to nine, the reign of the son. Verses 10 to 12, the reconciliation of the spirit. That's how it is divided. It's like four stanzas, three verses per part, 12 verses in whole. Again, this psalm is so rich theologically. It's like a huge rock 
of implications, applications, descriptions, and conditions. The first thing that I want you to think about as we're making our way through is the historic implications that it has with events like the Tower of Babel. The people gathered together to make a name for themselves. The Lord sees them. He's displeased at them. He scatters them. He turns their babble, their confusion, into the eventual establishment of nations and peoples and tongues. What I also want you to see in Psalm 2 is the actual practical application in King David's time. He's the author of Psalm 2. He's obviously writing about something that's happening as he's king and vassal nations that are supposed to be under his kingdom are breaking away and rebelling against him. That's the practical of Psalm 2. But when you keep reading, you recognize it's as if the spirit takes a hold of the pen of the author and predicts something or prophesies something greater than the king, David himself. And that's what we'll see, prophetic descriptions of what? The first coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ. That's the greater portion of the Psalm. And finally, watch this. We're also gonna notice prophetic conditions to our time. Are you ready for it? Psalm two, verses one to three. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now, now first thing to note, why do the nations rage or the heathen or the people and why are they plotting a vain thing? Here's the awesome discoveries of the word of God. The word plot in your verse one is the same Hebrew word that you find in Psalm one about the man or woman who meditates on the law of the Lord. The word meditate in Psalm one is the same Hebrew word here in verse one of Psalm two. Contrast the two types of people with me, if you will. The man or woman of of the Lord meditates and thinks of the things of God, the law of the Lord. Conversely, those that are rebellious against the things of the Lord, they're meditating on how they can overthrow God's rule in their life. So right away, we have a contrast how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are connected. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? I want you to know this, biblically speaking, every nation, definition, okay, a nation is the collection of her people. A nation, said generally, is the collection or reflection of her people. Every nation is bound to worship God or be judged. Did you know that? One of the most explicit passages that tell us of this ordination of every nation to worship God or be judged is found in the book of Acts, chapter 17. It's Paul's sermon, and I'll pick up in verse 24. Listen to the words of the apostle Paul as penned by Luke. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of the heavens and the earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Are you thinking about this? This God, he has made from one blood, one man, every race, or nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, 
From one came many. This is what we're discovering. And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. Stop, I couldn't get past that. God has determined every nation's and her people's pre-appointed times of existence. Kingdoms come and go. Kings rise and fall. None of that happens outside of the sovereign will of God. We know that from Daniel chapter two. But more than that, look at it. And the boundaries of their dwellings. Can I give you another word to describe what God is establishing as his creative order? Borders. (laughs) Borders are God's idea. And the enemy wants to transgress anything that God establishes for order. This will help you understand what's happening at our southern border. This will help you understand what it looks like for the nations and people to rage and the people to conspire and plot a vain thing. This will help you understand one of the curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28, a people who have disobeyed God. One of the curses is illegal immigration, a flooding of people who are not citizens or who engage in the legal immigration of a sovereign state, a border. Now riddle me this, why are they discovering military-aged Chinese nationals coming across the southern border? For those that don't know geography, that's Mexico. It's a long ways off from China. And these are men without wives, children or families, they're coming in. Chinese nationals are coming across the southern border? Now answer this question, why in the world would the Biden administration be fighting to keep that border open, fighting against the very governor who is fighting to close that border? Now you would say, don't get political, pastor. I'm saying I'm not, I'm getting very spiritual. And what we need to see is Psalm 1 is at play. The people are raging, they're conspiring, and they're literally overthrowing the very establishments, according to Acts chapter 17, the pre-appointed times and the boundaries of the people. I could say more. You know, there's 8 million plus illegal migrants since 2020. By November of 24, there will be nearly 12 million. That's greater than some state populations. Now you gotta understand why this is happening. Read Deuteronomy 28. Read it slow. Of course, that is a direct application to the blessings and curses against Israel. But there's always indirect applications in the word of God. Anyone or nation that would rebel against God and seek to replace him will, of course, welcome the curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, why did the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Instead of repenting and relying on the Lord, which is what he asks us, the nations rage and slander the Lord. Let me continue to read Paul's amazing sermon from Acts 17. Why did God establish pre-appointed times and boundaries so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. 
Though he's not far from each one of us, he's right there. For in him we live and move and have our being. And also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. What an awesome sermon. The nations rage, the people plot a vain thing. The kings, specifically the highest positions of power, the judges and rulers, they take counsel together, direct application to this psalm was when King David recognized there were vassal nations that were breaking away and forming coalitions and trying to overthrow the Lord's anointed. But he goes beyond David, that present time, and the spirit inspires him to write about another time. And that would be the time of Christ's first advent. That's the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now you know how the narrative goes. At the end of his ministry, the religious leaders conspired against him. Who else? The king, his name was Herod, conspired against him. Who else? Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Roman arm. And you have these two and the religious leaders all coming against Jesus. Interestingly, Luke 23 verse 12 tells us that King Herod and Pilate were enemies until the day where their common enemy made them friends. Isn't that fascinating? They probably had completely different value systems. Probably had nothing in common. And yet, their enemy, Jesus, was enough to align rulers, kings, agencies, organizations to come at with common hatred, the Lord and his anointed. You know, this Psalm is one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. It's first quoted in Acts chapter four, verses 25 and 26. It's when Peter and John had just been released. They were detained for speaking the name of Jesus with boldness. They come back to the early church and of course, they report about what had occurred and the writer, which is Luke in the book of Acts, he records that what occurred with them and Jesus, the kings and the rulers of the earth taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, that was being fulfilled. It was as if they were reaching into the ancient Psalm, Psalm two, and asking the Lord of the heavens who had already fulfilled his plan through Jesus the Savior and now they are the recipients of the message or the mission, and they're commissioned to go forth and share the message of the gospel. And they would, of course, experience opposition and persecution from a rebellious world where the nations will rage and the people will plot and conspire and think about how they can overthrow the kingdom of heaven and overthrow his rule and what you're seeing in the world, and I could pick apart the World Economic Forum. I could pick apart the World Health Organization. I could talk about the Great Reset. I could talk about the, the recent discovery 
of the Chinese scientists of a COVID mutant strain that has a 100% kill rate, but only on mice. And don't worry, we're going to keep it in our lab, just like last time. <laughs> Could talk about the institution of the neural link, the first human brain was embedded with a chip this past week. I could talk about all the global agencies aligning against God, or I could talk about our own nation raging and being led astray by ungodly kings and rulers, judges, mayors, governors, school board members, medical professions, not to mention the present White House, all of which are pictures of God's judgment over man. How so? You're living in a Romans one world. One of the forms of God's judgment over man is him giving man over to their own judgment. The worst type of judgment is for him to give man over to his own judgment, a reprobate mind. And this is the days of the judges in 2024, where there was no king and the people did what was ever right in their own eyes. You're witnessing that. You recognize the times you're living in. What happens is man's rule apart from God's rules, will always be unruly. The way man rules, his authority, apart from God's rules, God's principles, God's creative order, God's law, God's statutes, God's way, will always be unruly. Psalm 49, 20, a man who is in honor, a man who is in a position of honor, yet does not understand, no wisdom, is like the beasts that perish. This is the word of the Lord. Anyone in a position of power, authority, yet doesn't have biblical wisdom or understanding, the Bible's like, they're like a beast that perishes. Now keep in mind, wherever God intends to rule, the enemy will be unruly. He'll be waiting right there to stir up discord and confusion. That's why you are seeing defiance on every level, not just against what we call the American Constitution, which by the way is the supreme law of our land, also has Judeo-Christian values embedded in it. Let's put that aside. We're witnessing the complete defiance against the Judeo-Christian Constitution, AKA the Bible, which is what verse three in Psalm two is all about. What is the rebellious chant of their hearts? Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Translation. We don't want biblical boundaries defining our reality. We want to rebel against the cords of Christ. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that Jesus' invitation to link up with him or harness with him or put his yoke upon you is one that is light. It actually relieves you of heavy burdens. It's one that infuses rest in your soul. But notice how the world, they don't want him to have charge over them. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 19 about minas, like talents, amounts of money given, and the people receive the master's minas, and they watch him go off on a long journey, and they hear he's going to return. And you know the rebellious chants of their hearts? Do you know your Bible? We will not have this man rule over us. People don't outright speak like that, but their actions, behaviors, Attitudes, values typically show us this chant is not just about temporary rage. This chant is a deep-seated hate. Sinners see God's statutes as shackles. Sinners see God's principles as chains. Now, it's amazing. I see so much content 
not just on social media, things people send me. I follow Amir Sarfati on Telegram. And it's amazing, something I'll see will be brought back to my memory as I'm writing the sermon. I'll stop and I'll consider, how can I animate or illustrate this point? What does it look like for a heart to say forth, we will not have this man rule over us. Let's break the bonds in pieces. Let's cast away Christ's cords from us. And what was brought to my memory was a video of a OBGYN Wisconsin student talking about how they will not work towards their career in Wisconsin if, actually, I'll let the video tell you the rest. I think when somebody finds out in pregnancy, when, or how far along that they are when someone finds out, they should be able to get an abortion if they want to. And for some people, that is full term. If I can't get abortion training here, if I can't perform abortions in my career, I will not stay in Wisconsin. And a lot of my colleagues who are on the same track agree. All right, thank you. That'll do nothing to help our shortages. You see, that decades ago was something that would have been whispered in the dark. Now it is broadcasted and publicized and said without shame in the light. That's Psalm chapter one, two, verse three. That is the heart that is saying, we will not have God rule over us. And if I can't perform an abortion at the latest term possible, I don't even wanna practice in this field. See, the bonds of the Bible are always intolerable to the heart of the rebel, always. And that was the truth for us before we came to Christ. We were rebelling against the bonds of the Bible, the cords of Christ. We didn't wanna harness or be yoked with him. Why? Because the flesh and the sin nature that has paralyzed us. Psalm chapter two, verses four to six is God's response. Whether global, national, personal, God's response to rebellious man. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now, now please don't miss this. It says he sits in the heavens, sovereignty, supreme, and he laughs. It says he holds them in derision. The word is he holds them in their mockery. Would you remember Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor what? Sits in the seat of mockery. Psalm 2 is saying God is in a position, he's seated too. And he's laughing and he's holding them to their mockery. Now there's so many verses that supplement Psalm 2, Proverbs 1, 25 to 27. Because you disdained all my counsel, this is wisdom speaking. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. 
In Psalm 37, 12, and 13, listen to this. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming. God is not laughing at the misery, the suffering, the evils of the world, but he's laughing at evil man's attempt to overthrow his kingdom and his king. One line summarizes it all. Human anarchy is divine comedy. He laughs. While we worry about how election cycles are going to turn out, God sits in the heavens in complete control. Why? Because I have set my king, he says. Did you catch the possession there? My king and the word have. Not I'm going to. I have. I've installed. It's final. It's done. It's established. The inauguration of my kingdom, it might sound like it hasn't happened yet, but it is finished. Notice this. Man's insurrection or the insurrection of the devil himself, Lucifer and all his demons. The insurrection of hell cannot, will not overthrow the installation of heaven. That's true. That's true in the the story. It's true in your story. Now, stay with me. Let's replace a few words. The insurrection of man cannot overthrow the installation of Christ. And one of the installations of Christ, not just his birth, his life, his death, but the installation of his kingship is his resurrection. When he got up from that grave, he defeated the devil. He destroyed the works of the devil. The the resurrection did that. And what I love about the resurrection is one, the tomb is empty. You can go visit it and there's no body. And ever since he established his church, the church is the aftermath of the resurrection. The movement that was established, we call it his body. Why? Because he ascended back to heaven, the head, and he sits at the right hand of his father. And he has been given all authority. And he leaves with us an authority to carry out his mission on earth. The enemy could not bury Christ and the world at large cannot bury Christianity. They've, they've tried. Men like Emperor Diocletian, whose entire aim was to extinguish the early church movement. Did you know that? He literally publicized his efforts to eliminate the name of Christ and his church. He's long been gone in the grave and Christianity only gained more territory. How about men even in the 18th century named Voltaire, the French philosopher in Europe at the time, one of his main aims, one of his main reasons for writing and thinking was to eliminate the movement of Christianity. In fact, he said within a hundred years, the Bible will be completely archaic or found in a museum. One of his quotes, I paraphrase it, but he suggests that within a hundred years, this Bible, it's going to be found in a museum somewhere. Did you know that his very dwelling where he had a printing press, where he would publicize 
different anti-Christ and anti-Christian literature was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society. And on his same printing press, they've produced millions of Bibles that have gone out from his home since he's been dead and the word of God lives on. You gotta understand this. Psalm 2 tells us all of these enemies of God, enemies of Christ, enemies of the church, they are all footnotes in history. You read about what they did, but if you keep reading at the very bottom, there's that asterisk and it just says the date of their death. And as they're the footnotes in history, one day, according to the word of God, they will be footstools for Christ himself. That's Psalm chapter 110. Notice, if you will, it's my king, God says, but also notice the location. Don't miss this. My holy hill of Zion. Listen, many make the greatest and gravest mistake by saying that Zion here, even in Psalm 2, is somehow spiritualized to be the church. No, this Zion is physical, literal, geographical. Where is Christ going to establish his kingdom and his reign? And where is he going to rule from? My holy hill of Zion. When you understand this, you understand why the animosity, why the hostility, why the tension, why are there so many nations raging and trying to eliminate or annihilate this little people known as Israel. Well, for one, the word of God says it. And that's why you got to know the word of God. Zechariah chapter 12 says Jerusalem or Zion is going to be a burdensome cup or a cup of intoxication. All the nations of the world are going to be so bloodthirsty and focused on little bitty Jerusalem. And for two, it's going to one day be the throne of God. And the historical divines that has taken place against Christ and his people from the Garden of Eden and Lucifer to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to Cyrus in Persia to every Roman emperor in the Roman days, all of that culminates in an attempted insurrection on Mount Zion. Now, let me give it to you from another angle, just so you see it. What's happening in the Middle East? One day Christ will return and he will be established as King of Kings and Lord of Lords on my holy hill of Zion in Jerusalem, which helps you understand with this map what's taking place. There is only one Jewish state in all of the world. Compare and contrast that with at least the 22 Arab states. If you notice the differences in their population right now, there's approximately 7.5 million Jews in Israel, with many more returning from all around the world, which is what the Bible says will happen, and they're coming back to their homeland, compared to a 440 million in total population of the Arab nations or the Arab League. Now look at the size of the territory. It's 0.2 million square miles of land for Israel. It's that little blue dot compared to 5 million square miles of land. There's your occupation. But when Christians know their word, they understand this is not illegal occupation. This is God's eternal covenant in a land. Let me kind of drive this home. The Bible be true. Ezekiel 43, verse seven. And he said to me, this is Ezekiel, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. Did you catch that? Yeah. 
I'm not done. Psalm 132, verse 13 and 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Not done. Jeremiah chapter three, verse 17. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. How about what Isaiah records? Isaiah chapter two, beginning in verse two. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's of the millennial kingdom. Now, I don't expect you to know where that verse is found. Isaiah chapter two, verse four. I'll tell you, it's actually located in what is known as the United Nations Plaza in New York City. And across from the plaza is a park. And in the park is a wall. And the wall is called Isaiah's Wall. And on Isaiah's Wall is Isaiah chapter two, verse four. But instead of quoting the entire verse, they only quote the second part of the verse, which says this, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's one of the charters, look at me, of the United Nations. But you notice what they omitted in that passage? The one who will come and establish peace and cause men to put down their swords. So the entire aim of what we call the United Nations on a global scale is they're trying to broker peace throughout the world, but they're made up of a bunch of men who fulfill Psalm 2. Why do the United Nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Why are the kings of the earth and the rulers of these councils coming together and conspiring and saying against the Lord and his anointed, we will not have this man rule over us. Let us break their bonds in pieces. Let us cast away their cords from us. The United Nations has agencies all throughout the world all humanitarian in their efforts, including the United Nations Relief and Work Agency of Palestine, who were discovered recently, many of their members, to have participated in the massacre of October 7th. But not only participated in the massacre of October 7th, they have indoctrinated many children who call themselves Palestinians in that area, under the United Nations umbrella, they have a school where their agents are actually the teachers. To show you what's happening on the ground, watch this video. <laughs> في ناس بيحبوا فلسطين بدهم يحاربوا وبيضحوا دمهم عشان عشان فلسطين انا بدي اهزمهم بالحرب بدي اهزمهم 
بيعلمونا ان الاقصى النا وقلنا يعني الحق يعني قلنا فلسطين والاراضي كلها النا لانه لانهم بسبب كذبهم وانتهاكاتهم انهم يقولون ان الهيكل تحت المسجد الاقصى ولا مره انه يكون الهيكل تحت المسجد الاقصى انا اقرا اليهود بعلمونا اه ان الصهيونيه هم اعدائنا وهم اهم شيء لازم يسووا فيهم عمليه يعني انهم بيعلمونا بالمدرسه انهم ارهابيين و بيحكوا لنا عن اليهود انهم هدول مش منيح وهدول بقتلوا قاعدين بشبابنا بيحكوا لنا بيحكوا لنا هدول غدارين وبيحكوا لنا انه هدول بغدرونا وهدول مش منيح اذا بد... بطعن بدعس عليهم اعمل عمليات الدعس عمليات الدعس عمليات الطعن والاشتباك المصالح في المخيمات ايش اكيد هدول العمليات ترفع الراس ولفلسطين العمليات هاي تاعت الدعس والسكاكين هاي ايش بيرفع الراس لفلسطين اذا بدك بطلع بستشهد عادي انا ان شاء الله اساعد الشباب وان شاء الله اصير مقاوم بالمستقبل مع الدوله الاسلاميه You see, it's sad, it's self-explanatory. It also brings you into what's happening behind the scenes. Spiritually speaking, there's a battle and it's raging. And yes, one of the ways the enemy does his greatest damage is through flesh and blood. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the principalities and the powers of darkness the hosts of wickedness, which is why the spiritual armor is supposed to be applied. Now, the word of God, as Psalm, as Psalm 2 tells us, you got this like buildup. You have God saying he's gonna establish his king in a location. And then you actually have in verses seven to nine, the son or the anointed one, the Messiah, he reiterates what God the Father legislates. Just read it as you are understanding a conversation between father and son. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, now he's reiterating what the Lord, father God has said to him. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Note this, the nations that were raging, the nations that are plotting, They're gonna one day be his inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Verse nine, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, you are my son, today I've begotten you. That is written about in Acts 13, 33, Hebrews chapter one, verse five, Hebrews chapter five, verse five. Three different times, the reiteration of Christ being the son. In this interaction, in this conversation between father and son, we see the son's form of government. Can I remind you, ladies and gentlemen, in the United States of America, the Lord that you serve, who is your savior, Jesus, ruler of the universe, he has only one form of government, and it's not democracy. His form of democracy, his form of government is ruling the world by decree, not democracy. When he returns, there will be no vote. His decree is final. 
If you know history, you understand some of the greatest kings of all time, like Nebuchadnezzar. They were nothing but puppets in the hands of God. Darius, Cyrus, they were not acting even on their own accord. Yes, free will is at play for all of us, but no one can circumvent the sovereignty and plan of God. Remember when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate? I love this scene, because it's real. He's not talking. He's not answering questions. Pilate says, smugly, why are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to crucify you or to set you free? Jesus said most profoundly and humbly, you have no authority over me except what has been given to you from heaven. You know how powerful that is? This helps us understand Acts 2, 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Acts 4, 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Let me add some verses from Psalms to Revelation to solidify verses seven to nine. Watch this. Psalm 72, 11. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Psalm 82, verse eight. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Revelation, in case you think it's an Old Testament thing, Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Notice when he comes and he establishes his kingdom, it tells us with great imagery, he shall break them with a rod of iron. His scepter is one of power. He shall dash them like pottery, like clay, and they shall be broken in pieces. Psalm 110 verses one and two. The Lord said to my Lord, this is the father speaking to the son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. You jump a few verses forward in Psalm chapter 110, verses five and six. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. Smile, God loves you. This is Jesus. This is the one we want to act like it's all peaches and cream. This is what it says he is going to accomplish when he returns. Revelation 2, 26 and 27. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. That's us. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. That's the quote from Psalm 2. As I also have received from my father. Revelations 12, 5. I'm just showing you the Bible is full of imagery from Psalm 2. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was called up to God in his throne. Revelation 19, 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. 
As time's coming to a close, I need you to understand there's only really two responses in order. That's it. Two outcomes, if you will. That's it. And we now can choose to be broken before this Christ. You can choose to humble yourself before this Christ. You could choose to bow the knee and confess the tongue today on behalf of this Christ. Or according to the text, there's coming a day where you will be broken by Christ. That's it. You will be broken before him or you will be broken by him. Now, when I say brokenness, I'm talking about a complete posture of submission, which is what Jesus said is meekness. Meekness is not weakness. As Christians, the church is not a people who are weak. Yes, in our weakness, his strength is magnified. That's talking about complete dependence upon him. But the church's posture, look at me, the church's posture is one of meekness, strength under control. Hey, riddle me this, Batman. Does the body cower when the head is in power? Where's the head? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Where's the body? Here on earth. Should the body cower? Should we fear anyone or anything? If the head is in complete power, which is why the final stanza, if you kept your outline, the reconciliation of the spirit, the final voice, this is so important. Everything we just covered. Now let me read to you out of John 16, verses eight to 11. You wanna know the role of the Holy Spirit? This is the best verse that summarizes why he came. When he has come, this is the Spirit, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So you have three categories. Verse nine tells you of sin. Why does he convict the world of sin? Because they do not believe me. Why does he convict the world of righteousness? Because I'm going to the Father and you won't see me anymore. Jesus like, I'm the standard of righteousness. I'm here now physically. But when I go, my absence is going to be filled by my Holy Spirit, who's also going to convict the world of a standard of righteousness, which is why there will be no excuses from anyone on the day of judgment. And it says of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The word convict, it has three meanings. Conviction, like court conviction, indictment. Sin indicts, and the Spirit convicts us of our sin, each of us. And the Spirit also convinces, convinces us, convict, of righteousness. The Spirit of God keeps us on the path of righteousness. And the Spirit of God, throughout the world, through the church, convicts or condemns that there's a coming judgment and if you don't know Jesus, you're gonna stand before him on that day. This is why the verses that follow in Psalm 2, listen to this, in light of everything that has just been said, ready? Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Same category from verse one. Why do the nations rage? Why are the people plotting at the highest level? Kings, presidents, rulers, judges. At the very end, there's still this, this plea from the Holy Spirit saying, think about your ways. Consider the outcome. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. Right now, you're rebelling against him with no fear. Serve him with fear 
and rejoice with trembling. That's, that's a holy reverence. Kiss the sun. This is what you would do to show homage to a ruler in ancient times. You'd kiss their hand. This plea is kiss the sun like a dog lapping its master's hand, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Did you know Psalm 2 ends the way Psalm 1 begins? Blessed. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Translation, blessed are those who find refuge in Christ. Put all the Psalm together in one statement. There is no refuge from Christ. There is only refuge in Christ. That's it. Psalm 2 begins with sinners plotting. Psalm 2 ends with the spirit pleading. Psalm 2 shows us the rebellious nature of man apart from God, the cries of that heart. We will not have this man rule over us. We will not be submitted by his precepts, his statutes, his laws, his ways. But no matter man's rebellious state, God has embedded and installed his king of kings. And that installment is final. And he came once, and the Bible tells us he's coming again. And in the meantime, in the between time, the church's commission and mission is to administer the gospel and ask the world to repent from their sins. Well, at the same time, because our head is in power, the church and the body of Christ have no reason to cower. So regardless of what's happening in our land, regardless of the waves of evil that are flooding our land, when you know Bible, it tells us in Isaiah that regardless of the waves or flood of evil coming in, the Lord has lifted up a standard, a banner of truth against that evil. And I'm here to tell you every Wednesday that that banner is the word of God. And I'm inviting you on this journey as God does his work and as we ask him to come upon us and in us and do a work. And that's what we need. We need prayer. So I want to end by praying before dismissal. Just a, a prayer that asks the Lord to work in our hearts in the midst of everything that's happening. Would you join me as we do that? So Father, I ask for you to come just as John records, come, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. But I'm asking you to come in our hearts and do a work. Establish your kingdom in us. Use your church to share truth. We're thankful for your word that gives us an understanding of what's happening in our world. We too truly believe that what you've established is final. So I pray for your people now. Pray for marriages, families. Pray for all the needs in between. We give it all to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.